What's up, everybody? How about that, uh, how about that wonderful, uh, lovely, delightful weather outside? Uh, you trade off, like, really great weather for a couple days. You know, opening day for the Cardinals was pretty good. Then we, uh, then we traded off for the monsoon of today, but uh, there could be worse things for sure. Um, to uh, kind of kick us off tonight, uh, I want to just begin by updating everybody. So we have a team of 20 people from our church who are down in Ecuador this week. Uh, Mark, our lead pastor, has gone with them. Uh, happy to report so far that everybody is still alive, which is always a plus when it's a Mark-led trip. Everybody is still uh, healthy, relatively. I would imagine that starts changing maybe in a couple hours. Um, but we, uh, we have an amazing um, opportunity down there to continue this partnership with uh, Steve and with Sandy, with the missionary team that we have down there. So uh, things are good from that perspective. He texted me this morning um, and just said things are, are great and uh, just excited for us to meet tonight. So uh, it's, it's easy, though, in light of some, having somebody as dynamic as Mark is and as talented and as gifted as he is and as blessed as we are to have him uh, as a pastor. It's often overlooked, though, that there's somebody else in this church that I would say their, their service is equally as important equally as vital. And if this person wasn't uh, involved, if this person wasn't doing what they're doing, that we would be uh, up a creek. And so I just want to take uh, just a moment. I don't even know if she's back yet dropping the kids off, but and just thank Heidi Sigma for uh, all that she does, uh, the sacrifices she does. Uh, thank you, uh, Heidi, uh, very much wherever you are for all that you do. Although, let's be honest, I mean, having Mark not around for a week is it's probably kind of a lull time, so it's, it's more likely that we probably need to pray for her when he is around uh, for the danger to be averted then rather than this week, but uh, nonetheless, um, there it is. So uh, starting off, um, you know, a month ago, my wife and I and our son Reed were brought up front. Uh, you guys as a congregation prayed over us. Uh, Sarah had three weeks ago, she had our second uh, boy. His name is Blaine, just to catch you up on kind of what my life has been like for the past three weeks. Uh, Andrew has a picture here he's going to put up of uh, the Corzine boys, at least. Uh, that was, I'm serious, that was the exact moment where Reed grew up about five years, like in an instant. Unbelievable uh, how much bigger he seemed right there. Um, but it's crazy because having a baby in your house, having an infant around changes a lot of things. Uh, it's kind of obvious, but it, it really like anchors you into the home. I mean, you can do as much as you want to, get out for stints or whatever, but at some point in time, you're pretty much going to be uh, back in the house serving, uh, taking care of him, and Sarah and I have been doing that together, trying to, you know, provide, do what he needs us to do, help Reed, play with Reed, you know, learn to grow as a family now with two kids, and some of you guys out there, I know, have way more kids, so I'm not going to, like, start talking about how hard it is for me in comparison to you, I get that, um, but... One thing that, uh, beyond just the beauty of, of our family growing, one thing that's been a blessing for us to take part in over the past couple weeks is uh, having more and more people come to visit us, and people from the church who come to serve us and bring us meals and spend time with us and talk and hang out. And it's also been a blessing because we've been able, since we've been around so much, to just simply play out in the front yard a lot more. And it's amazing the amount of conversations that we have with our neighbors as if we make ourselves available and ready and open to that. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that whether you're in Ecuador or St. Charles or wherever you are, anywhere in between, is that I guess I'm so happy and so thankful um, that this church is a church full of missionaries, not just 20 people that we send down um, a couple times a year. 
Funny story real quick in the, the missionary work of, you know, our neighborhood. So uh, every night we sing happy birthday for some reason. Reed wants to sing happy birthday to two of our neighbors all the time. Uh, Mr. Keith, who came over last night, um, and then Mr. Hagopian, who lives next door to us. Mr. Hagopian is an 84-year-old man. And uh, funny story, Mr. Hagopian, a couple years ago, I spoke at a prayer breakfast that, uh, that he was hosting for his church. And uh, when he brought me up, he introduced me as Jerry Corvine, uh, which, you know, I can understand. I mean, ears don't maybe always work as well as they, you know, used to or whatever. Uh, and when Reed and I came to the door, that hasn't changed, by the, by the way. We write, like, super clear on the Christmas cards just to make sure. And uh, I'm, I'm still Jerry Corvine. Uh, Reed and I went over last week one day to uh, just knock on the door and see how he was doing. And uh, he said, hey, it's Jerry and Rex. And uh, so th- I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yep, you know. And it's, it's not patronizing. I heard a guy say over the weekend, it's, it's, it's something like redemptive lying or something like that, where, where you just kind of, for the dignity of somebody, you just keep going. And, uh, but here's the deal. Within 10 minutes of us being at Mr. Agopian's house, wonderful believer, he's reading scripture to read and I. So I tell you what, an 84-year-old man who wants to read scripture to me and my son can call me whatever he wants to call me. That's good fellowship right there. So... At the end of the day, all this stuff, all the missionary stuff, all the talk, all the, all the things that we talk about, pray about with these opportunities with people, nights like tonight, passages like tonight, remind you what's at stake. And it, it not only reminds you what's at stake, but I think, and my hope and my prayer tonight for all of you, for all of us together, is that we can get a bigger picture of who God is. And as we were praying in the back um, before the service, I had made the statement that I, I just feel like God is quite a bit too big for my britches tonight. And I think that's probably a pretty good thing. So let's dive in tonight and uh, jump into this. We're going to be into Exodus 9. And uh, luckily for all you guys who love coming to uh, long sermons, uh, this will hopefully not be the two-hour long sermon, but we are going to cover 35 verses. Uh, we're going to cover all of Exodus 9. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. So Exodus 9, I'm going to start off in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. The first time he says that title, by the way, he's beginning to, to distinguish Israel away from Egypt. It says, let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 2, for if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. If you guys remember last week at the, the plague of the gnats, when they were coming down, the magicians in Pharaoh's court tried replicating that plague, and when they couldn't do it, what did they say? This is the finger of God. Thank you. Yes. Um, this is the finger of God. And so pay attention to what hands are doing in this passage, by the way. Who's holding? Who's sending? Whose hand is on what? So the case is being made that God is uh, progressing in the amount of pressure that he's putting on Pharaoh here. So he's going to do this to all the livestock. Uh, it says in verse 4, But the Lord will make a distinction. Literally, he will set apart between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Don't you love it when God calls his shot? It's kind of what he's doing. I mean, it's, it's not so much a day of warning to Pharaoh, like tomorrow I'm going to do this. He's saying, hey, tomorrow when this happens, you'll know that this happened because I said in this place, I called my shot, right? 
Uh, this is like calling the shot when you have the H-O-R-S, and you're like, no, I'm going to make this right here. Um, this is going to happen, and this is going to be my hand that makes it happen. So you have to wrestle with this question. In this plague, uh, in the fifth plague, why livestock? Well, first of all, the Egyptian, uh, one of the many Egyptian deities that they worshipped uh, was the Egyptian mother sky goddess Hathor. And I didn't have a picture for you because if you pretty much just picture a pretty woman's head and a pretty looking bull and put them together, that's Hathor. So you, you can do the imagination. Um, but they worshipped this goddess. It was another goddess of fertility. They cared a lot about fertility, uh, as we all should, but they cared a whole lot about it in Egypt. And so they worshipped this goddess who uh, was a woman's head on the body of a bull, on the body of livestock. And so the Lord saying, I'm going to strike down this livestock uh, is, he's going he's gonna to tell them what's up. He's going to tell them what's up with Hathor and who's real and who's not. Uh, but it makes me think, if, if livestock were struck down, how would that begin to affect life in Egypt? Because when I think of livestock, I think of, you know, pretty-looking, Oreo-looking cows that you see, like, driving through the country, and they always just stand there, but they're not doing anything. I think if livestock were decimated in Egypt, this is probably a part of what happens. Food is, is, is taken out. So a, lot of whole, a whole lot of meat gets messed up right there. Um, a whole lot of milk, a whole lot of liquid, a whole lot of farming, even, even maybe some of these animals to do farming before they had plows and things like that. So farming gets messed up. Transportation maybe gets messed up. Camels and the such. Commerce gets messed up. You, can't, you can no longer trade or barter for some of these livestock. I think the Lord is essentially bringing a halt to Egyptian daily life. He's messing with their goddess and he's bringing a halt to Egyptian daily life. So he said tomorrow he's going to do this thing. Now we're going to read the actual whole plague each of the three times tonight in their entirety. So verses 6 and 7, here we go. And the next day the Lord did this thing, right? Surprise, surprise. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. I love how Pharaoh sends reconnaissance for the first time. You know, the people of Israel were living uh, in the northeastern section of Egypt around the Nile Delta called Goshen. It's going to come up later in the passage. So the, the Israelites, even though they work all in Egypt, they go back and live in a certain community. And so Pharaoh, not sure, I, you have to imagine him looking out of his palace and seeing livestock just completely decimated and struck down dead everywhere. And then he sends some spies out to say, see if, see if their livestock are alive. So the spies go out, they see it, they come back, they tell him, and it says that his heart was hardened and he did not let the people go. If you've been journeying with us for a few weeks, we've been working on uh, a wonderful little plague chart. So if you have your plague chart, get out the plague chart. We're going to mess with the first one here. Uh, my wife told me, by the way, that doing things like this uh, in one of the churches that she uh, grew up in was, was actually a way to um, look like you were pretty interested in, uh, in what was happening, but you actually just tried to guess the answers before they came out. So uh, please don't do that. And if, but if you want to look like you're interested, just you know, do something else maybe. But, but check this out here for the plague chart. I hope that you are interested, by the way. But uh, here on the plague chart, we're going to go through these questions. First is this, what was the fifth plague? Egypt's livestock struck down. Okay, fair enough. Second question, why did God choose that specific plague? Well, defeat Hathor, the Egyptian sky goddess, and disrupt everyday life. Seems pretty simple enough. What was Pharaoh's reaction? Pharaoh's heart was hardened after he did reconnaissance to see that Israel's livestock 
was alive. I have to imagine that it would be a pretty, um, a pretty quiet moment w- with everybody around Pharaoh at that moment. You know, when they come back and say, all of Israel's livestock are still alive. I can imagine everybody else kind of taking a step away from Pharaoh and feeling the hardness, the heaviness, the weightiness in the room. So what was the result? Next question. Egypt's livestock died, bringing much of Egyptian daily life to a halt. I mean, it's such a huge piece of their society, a huge piece of their industry. And God, as a part of this plague, not because he hates cows, but because of what this would do to, to knock Egypt uh, onto their knees, he did this thing. Uh, next question, what does this plague reveal about God? If you're starting to pick up a trend in this question, by the way, I want to pat you on the back, but hopefully you're starting to pick up on this. Uh, the answer is God is accomplishing his will by his power alone for his glory alone. If you look on your chart, all the answers are starting to kind of show this same theme. And all throughout tonight, God is going to show over and over. He even tips his hand at one point uh, to say that this is who I am. My question is, what is your response to what God did? Or maybe even better yet, what it, maybe it's not livestock for you, but if, if the Lord took something out of your life for a purpose, um, I guess what would be the thing that would cause your daily life to really stop? For many of us, it's as easy enough as, as, as the Lord just making our cell phone not charge up or something, you know, but, but there has to be more serious things than this. What would your response to this be? Picture yourself in the story. That's my hope tonight is that the story can get bigger and that we can actually find ourselves not as outsiders but as insiders looking within this story and experiencing it together. So plague chart accomplished. Step good. Nice. Everybody good? We're going to keep going. Yes. Um, onward and upward. Verse 8 as the story continues. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. I'm picturing LeBron James style right now. If, you, if you've ever watched, like, how many of you guys are NBA fans? LeBron James fans? No? Boo? Okay, fine. So be it. Uh, I, I did see him play in a playoff game last year, and it's, it's, no matter what you think about the guy, it's actually pretty amazing to see him do his thing. But, you know, you picture Moses, and uh, I, I love that God says um, to Moses and Aaron, it's almost like Aaron's the accountability piece to make sure that Moses keeps uh, up his end of the bargain. So go over, take handfuls of soot from the kiln. Now, there, was, uh, there were kilns all over Egypt that were used to make bricks. This is not like an oven where they made pizzas. This is, a, this is a brick oven in which they did, like way back in chapter 5, where Pharaoh uh, imposed this on the Israelites where he said that, the Israelites were going to have to make bricks without straw. So you love how things have come full circle at this point. The Lord says, Moses, take handfuls of soot from the kiln right before Pharaoh's eyes, right? LeBron James, like right up in the air, throw it up in the air. In verse 9, here's what it says. And it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. You get, I don't know how the physics work out in this. I mean, this is, this is another... Um, this is just more evidence that God is the God of all things, that he can do all things. Moses is taking handfuls, two handfuls probably of, of soot, throwing them in the air in one piece, like one square foot in Egypt. Egypt is 387,000 square miles big. It's bigger than Texas. I know people from Texas don't like to admit that anything is bigger than Texas, but Egypt is bigger than Texas. 
And Moses takes these handfuls of soot, throws them up in the air, and all of a sudden fine dust causing boils is all over the entire land. I mean, the unbelievable nature of this is starting to, to take shape. I mean, you would almost have to see it to believe that it actually could happen. So the Lord says, this is what's going to happen. It's going to cause boils all over the skin of, of men and beasts all over Egypt. I've never had a boil on my skin, but I, I imagine it's something, and I imagine what they're talking about here is something along the lines of a skin irritation that's like an open sore that is painful. Uh, you got to remember where they are. They're not sitting in like Sweden where they can put some ice onto it or something. This is in Egypt, right? This is sandy, hot, uncomfortable, boils everywhere, man and beast. Uh, everybody's hating it. This is what's going to happen. So we're going to read verses 10 through 12. Let's, let's see it actually take place. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. You got to, you know, what's Moses saying, you know, in his mind, by the way? This is crazy. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon the Israelites, or upon all the Egyptians. And verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. You love the parody of this scene. You have Moses... I picture him just with the handfuls of soot standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh maybe even wondering what's going to happen next. But you have Moses standing before Pharaoh, and then after this happens, the magicians, the supernatural guys in Egypt, are unable to stand before Moses. There's so much wordplay going on here that I hope you see that, that power is being shown, God's power is being shown through this meek person, this ordinary man called Moses. So we have more to fill out in our wonderful plague chart so pull out your plague charts once again. I wish we had a better name for it, by the way, but plague chart seems to be pretty straightforward. So plague chart, there we go. Uh, what was the sixth plague? Boils on Egyptian people and beasts. Beasts is a pretty, you know, that's, that's a pretty broad term, by the way. Maybe Egyptian minotaurs and kitty cats, and if those are beasts, I don't know. Uh, second question, why did God choose that specific plague? To show who has the real power and how far it reaches. God and his power is not bound to one piece of space and time. He's not bound just to the person of Moses, just in that place. God's power is being seen all over Egypt. Third question, what was Pharaoh's reaction? The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and did not listen to him. We have a trend going on, you know. What was the result? Magicians cannot stand. Boils on man and beast throughout Egypt. You have to begin thinking about what Egypt even is looking like at this point in time. Egypt founded 31, 3200 BC, probably the first united monarchy in all the ancient Near East. This is like the developed world in their day. And this place, in a matter of plagues, has become just this decimated, ruined place. This place that probably boasted so much power, so much arrogance, you know, so much, so much ability to, to move and shake the world is being literally shaken to its knees by the true God of all things. Last question, what does this plague reveal about God? Well, God is accomplishing his will by his power alone. Moses couldn't do this. Aaron couldn't do this. Pharaoh certainly can't do this for his glory alone. It's pretty insane to see what God is, um, like how he's bringing these plagues about. 
So far what I've seen is God use a whole lot of things that he probably genuinely delights in and loves. You know, water from the Nile. Frogs. Who, who, anybody like a big frog fan here? Like has a pet frog still? Skippy? Skippy's a pet frog in a book that we read, uh, that we read each night. Snappy's his name. Sorry. So you have these things. Water, frogs, gnats, flies. Maybe people don't like gnats and flies that much, but I bet God does very much. He created them. You have livestock. Livestock. You have these, these creepy, crawly, four-legged things that start pulling at your heartstrings when they die. You have God using a whole lot of things, and now here including boils on skin, on bodies that God even likes, people made in God's image, even in Egypt. God is sacrificing the things that he delights in, that he cares about, that he affirms for the sake of his redemptive purposes. Now, the gospel is not just a, a story that took place um, 2,000 years ago, the, the gospel is a story that has been in the works for a very, 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 very long time. How would you react if you were in this situation? Boils all over your body. You're, you're an Egyptian, and all of a sudden, you didn't ask for these things, but you, your neighbors, and everybody that was around you just had boils coming over you. What do you think the scene would be like? Yeah, Mark, Mark is a Walking Dead, you know, fan like that show on AMC. I'm, I've never seen it myself, but I hear it's pretty good. And, you know, I would imagine maybe it looks something like that. People walking around, boils all over the place, salivating. I don't know. Maybe you don't like that show, but, but maybe it looks something like that. I don't know. God is doing some pretty huge, weighty things so far in these last two plagues. But... Uh, we're going to keep going. I, I, I say that we're going to get into the good stuff. It's been good so far, but it, it gets pretty awesome here. So verse 13, as, as we move on. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. I picture Moses, by the way, like sneaking up to Pharaoh's room and like being there when he wakes up and Pharaoh turns around and here's Moses and he's like, let my people go. You know? Get up very early in the morning very early in the morning and show up. Be the first thing that he sees. Verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So thus far Pharaoh has been able to make these decisions, to refuse to let the Israelites go. He's hardened his heart. He's been against the Lord in every step of the way. And he hasn't felt the effects of any of it. While animals die, while people suffer, while their industries are being completely decimated. Thus far, he sat inside his palace, and he's just been the man. He, he and the servants who are close to him around them, they've been enjoying a life of luxury. But God says, not anymore. By the way, from here on out, after every plague, Pharaoh begs. So take it for what it's worth. Verse 15, for by now I could have Put you out, uh, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have, would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. Literally, I have caused you to stand up to show you my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So, a couple, couple crazy things happening here. The Lord is, um, is tipping his hand. He's saying all this that's happened so far is happening so that you would see my power. And that so, and be, by me doing this thing, by me bringing the, the world's superpower at the time to their knees, the entire world is going to hear that there's another God. 
that Egypt doesn't rule things, that Pharaoh doesn't rule things, that your so-called gods don't rule things, that Yahweh, the Lord, rules everything. And I love what he confesses here, uh, what, it, what he says here, that there is none like me in all the earth, that, um, that God is alone in who he is, that nobody has the power that God has. Nobody has the ability, nobody has the love, nobody has the reigning scope that he has. The Israelites later on, after this passage, after the Exodus story, in Deuteronomy 6, they get a passage from Moses that becomes a prayer that they would recite day and night, morning and evening. The first thing they do when they get up and the last thing they do when they go to sleep. Right away, to start their day and to end their day, they would say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's such a loaded statement. The Lord, the Lord, the only one true God, our God, he's our God, is one. There's none equal. So God's tipping his hand to Pharaoh right here. He's saying, there's no one that uh, can do what I can do. There's no one like me. And you're only here because I've allowed you to be here. Which, by the way, brings me a little bit of peace when there's some crazy stuff happening in the world. If a nation has power, if it has authority, if it seems to, 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 to exercise some kind of a might... It's only because the Lord has allowed it to be that way. doesn't mean that the Lord endorses everything that nations do, right? But at the end of the day, we can believe that our God is the God over even the nations that hate him. And he will receive glory. So he gets back to the issue here in verse 17. You are still exalting yourself, right? Pharaoh thought he was God. He thought he was deity. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, again, God calling his jump shot, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in, in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Which assumes a couple things. Number one, that the Lord was around before Egypt, right? Uh, again, founded 31, 3200 BC. This is roughly 1800 years later. And the Lord is saying, I've been around this whole time. This has never happened, but something's going to happen that you've never seen before. And again, I don't know if anybody here has ever been to Egypt, but not a whole lot of hail falling down, okay? Uh, hail came down at our house. Any, any of you guys experienced some hail today uh, coming down your rooftops and you're getting ready to call the insurance uh, company and all that stuff? Okay, hail is going to come down. And it's going to rain down on this place, a dry, arid, desert place. It's unbelievable unless it's a God that can do these things. In verse 19, he says, Now therefore, this is awesome, send Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for uh, every uh, man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. I love how um, I'm assuming people who bring their livestock, who bring their servants, their people inside are starting to get the picture that Pharaoh isn't the Pharaoh of all things. That this God that, that the Israelites uh, claim to have as their God is actually more powerful than their own king. So some fear the word of the Lord. They bring their stuff inside. People are starting to die. After this plague, people will start to die. The weightiness of this is a mystery. It's perplexing. But one thing we have to assume in this is that there's a God who is holding all of this in the palm of his hands. A God who is able to do more abundantly than we can ask or think who is behind the scenes of all of this. 
So let's read the actual thing happened. Up, up until now, he's been talking about it. So verses 20 through, 22 through 26 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so there, there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder. Literally, the same word for thunder is voice in Hebrew. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy. You know, you get the feeling that this is, this is like, this is boiling up. Very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The biggest storm that Egypt has ever seen. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and, get this, broke every tree of the field. This is like cannonball-sized hail, right? Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So you have the land of Goshen. You got all this crazy stuff happening in Egypt. Hail coming down. Livestock probably still laying around. Probably haven't even had enough time to, to gather them up yet. Dead animal bodies everywhere. People's skins that, are, that, that still haven't even begun to heal yet. And then you have this, this rain of fire and, and hail and thunder voice thing going on. Unbelievable. I drove through a storm this morning that I felt like I was going to die. But that storm had nothing to do with this. That had nothing to hold on this. And the Lord is causing this thing to come down. But in the land of Goshen, there was peace. Goshen, this place, northeast Egypt, this place that was given to, to, to Joseph back in Genesis by the old Pharaoh 400 plus years ago, the 70 people who came into Egypt dwelling in this place, I imagine it got pretty cramped. There are hundreds of thousands of people there at this point. But in the land of Goshen, despite all this craziness, all this, this, terrible, uh, this terrible circumstances in Egypt, nobody can stop this. It is by the hand of the Lord himself. All this stuff going on in Egypt and in Goshen, it's quiet unbelievable what's beginning to happen here. What do you think Moses felt like when he held his hands up, when he held the staff up and he saw these things coming down? What do, you, what do you think he saw through his eyes and felt in his heart as he saw things being decimated? What do you think in Israel began to feel standing in Goshen? I imagine, I imagine this line on the border of Goshen and Egypt and an Israelite standing over here and, and he, here's the border of my, of my town and I'm looking just over the border, maybe just over the hill and I'm seeing death just happen everywhere. I'm seeing these things come down, and, and I'm only hearing stories that it's, it's the hand of the Lord, their God, who, who's come back. What would you think if you were in their shoes? I can tell you one thing I would think. Why are they getting judgment and not me? I know that, I know that I'm an Israelite, but I'm only an Israelite because my forefather Abraham was sought out by God. And God sought out this old man, Abraham, 90, 90 years old plus, and an in a, a, a infertile wife, and said, through you, I am going to build a nation through which all families of the earth will be blessed. And if you believe Genesis 3.15, then you mean there's an offspring of that family through which all the family of the earth will be blessed. One singular seed of Abraham. I'm thinking back to myself as I'm looking at all this stuff happening and I'm recognizing that in and of myself, 
I deserve the exact same thing. That it's only because God made a promise and because I believe in that promise with my people that sets me apart. This is the gospel way, way, way back in the Old Testament. So we have a little more work to do on our plague charts. We have the last uh, plague chart to wrestle with here. So if you have your plague chart, uh, get it out. Um, Okay. What was the seventh plague? Well, hail rained down upon Egyptian people, beasts, plants, and trees. Why did God choose that specific plague? Well, never before seen. It's the first plague that actually is something coming directly from the sky, but a never before seen phenomena, which means that God has no equal. No other God has done what God has done, which means that only God reigns. It's so unique to be a part of a religion, Christianity, that claims to follow one God. In Egypt at that time, most other religions of today are, are laying claim to many gods who can do many things. And Christianity, in my eyes, is the only religion big enough to have one God that can do them all. So what was Pharaoh's reaction? Pharaoh acknowledges his sin against the Lord. Did we get to that yet? But just in a moment of humanity, I'm realizing that maybe my note may maybe jump the gun on that. Okay, we'll get to that. Table this. Go ahead and write it down. Begs for God to stop, but harden his heart after the calamity stops. We're going to see this in the next deal. So you're just getting like the preview of the next, uh, the next shot. Okay, what was the result? Hail struck down everything that was in the field. Man, beast, plant, and tree. Everything. Unbelievable. I'm picturing, what's that big crooked tree that is out in front of Linwood? Like, is it just called a crooked tree? I mean, I'm imagining like hail striking down that and great sequoias and unbelievable what God is doing. Uh, What does this plague reveal about God? God is accomplishing his will by his power alone for his glory alone. You're noticing the trend here. So I want you to go back with me to Goshen. Go back with me to this place where in the midst of all the chaos and decimation and death and pain and sin, there's this other place that, that is housing all the people of God, that is peaceful, that is that way only because of God's grace. So my question is this, how do you live when you're one who has been distinguished, who's been set apart by God's grace? What was the right attitude of an Israelite in that place at the time? Because you can turn around and you can start pointing your finger at the Egyptians, saying, hey, if you just would, would have done what I would have done, you can't say that because nobody deserves what, you know, you know what I'm saying? God's grace wasn't deserved by the Israelites. How do you live in distinction when you walk in your everyday lives, when you go to different places, when you meet strangers, when you see friends, family who maybe don't believe? How do you live when you're the one who's received God's grace. It would be silly in this, in this point if Israel as a nation stood up and started beating their chest and acting like they had earned something. How do you see yourself differently when you've been set apart? Because it would also be silly for Israel to look at themselves and say, oh, we're, we're nothing, we're, we're wretched, we're terrible, we're, you know. No, they're the people of God. 
And, and maybe this is part of them beginning to learn that, that, hey, if the Lord is, is, is keeping this away from us, maybe we need to learn that this is who we are now. But how, you, how do you see yourself when you're, when you're set apart by God's grace? How do, you, how do you look at other people when you know that it wasn't your own doing that got you to this place? You didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You believed in Jesus. And Jesus did the work. So how do you see other people differently when you know that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith? May we be changed because we're changed not because of anything that we've done, but because of God's grace and everything that Jesus has done. So verse uh, 27, as we keep going, this is where my plague chart thing was out of order, so act surprised when we get to the best spot. Um, then Pharaoh sent, a whole lot of sending going on, and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned, which, unbelievable, I don't even believe him. What, what does he think he's been doing all the other times, right? Oh, this time I've sinned. Well, how do you know that? Because you got caught, Right? Or because he, he's feeling the effects of his sin maybe for the first time. Now he believes that he sinned. He says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. He's calling him the Lord by now, which is good. Uh, and I and my people are in the wrong. Though I'm not entirely sure that his people are at fault for why they're in this position. In verse 28, commanding Moses, what a prideful guy. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder, right? God's voice. And hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. In verse 29, Moses says to him, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. You see the purpose statements in this. There, there's, there's a common thread in this, so that you will know that there's only one true God. Verse 30, But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Moses has, Moses has this, this divine ability to be able to see into the situation. I know that you're not there yet to the point of truly fearing the Lord. And for the two verses that some of you have waited eight years for us to read at Matthias, the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, amen. But the wheat and the emmer were, were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. Okay, okay, so, so probably not your next tattoo verse or whatever that you're going to get. But here's the situation. Moses, knowing the Egyptian agricultural calendar, looks at him and says, I know that you don't fear the Lord yet. I know that you're holding something back. And you know why I know? Because when that hail came down, it struck down everything that was alive. It struck down everything that was up. But Moses, being a smart man enough that he is, says, I know that you've got that, em- that, that wheat and emmer that's underneath the ground. That's going to come up soon, and you're going to rely on that again. How easy is that, by the way, to completely rely on the Lord when we, when we know that there's just nothing else that we can do, but the next, you know, the, the next time we get some coin, the next time we, we were provided in some way, it's so easy to turn back to that other thing and say, oh yeah, wait, this is, it was really just me. Moses says, I know that you don't yet fear the Lord. Verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. I love that he still does it, right? There's grace for Moses' part to Pharaoh. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. Amen about 3 o'clock this afternoon that that stopped. Literally, if you see buckets around the building, please don't move them, because we, you know, we're, we're, this is still us moving into this place. We have nice little water leaks all over the place. So the rain stopped and no longer poured upon the earth, in verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, 
He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. I love that the Lord can see straight through Pharaoh's lies. When, it, when he says, I and my people, we've sinned. The Lord is in the right. I, I, I love that God could see straight through that the whole time. The funny thing is, to me, Pharaoh prays the, the first half of the sinner's prayer. <laughs> you know, when people are, you know, they say, how can I receive Jesus? You say, well, pray this prayer. You know, God, I've sinned against you. I, I, I'm separate from you, you know. But by the blood of Jesus, I can be reunited. Help me to receive Jesus. Pharaoh prays the first half of the sinner's prayer effectively. I have sinned. I and my people. But here's the deal. It, it isn't enough to selfishly pray the first half of the sinner's prayer. And, and as a Christian, it's not enough to, to keep praying that first half your whole life, even after you know the Lord. I've sinned. I've sinned. It's good to acknowledge your sin before the Lord. It's good to repent. It's good to turn back. But repentance doesn't involve just acknowledging your sin. Repentance involves entrusting yourself, entrusting your life back into the hands of the Lord. And Pharaoh so far has completely seen what the Lord's hands can do. He's still going to see even more in the next couple of weeks what it, what, what's still left for those hands to do. But he has seen such a force uh, that has come from God's hands so far, recognizing in some way that he's done something to cause that. But it's not enough to pray the first half of the sinner's prayer. Judgment alone doesn't change our hearts. Have you seen that so far? God has brought judgment each time. And I would argue he's brought some mercy in that too. But judgment alone cannot change somebody's heart. Here's the flip side. Mercy alone seems to not change people's hearts as well. God is love and that's absolutely true. But I need to worship a God who is totally loving, and at the same time is totally wrathful against evil. And we wrestle with that all the time. We're so quick to embrace, and we should be quick to embrace, that God is love. But here's the deal. There are evil, terrible, malicious, horrible things going on in the world right now. You're picturing some of them in your mind. Horrible things that have been done to some of you. Terrible things happening in the third world right now. Weapons of war that are absolutely evil. And I need to worship a God that looks on those things, that looks on the sin against you in your past, that looks on the things that you've done to others, and says, that will not stand. I need to worship a God that says, one day that's going to be over. I have power over that. I need a God that hates evil. So after all this, whole big chapter, three plagues, get a little farther along in our chart, you know. To me, there's four things that we can know because of God's grace. Put yourself back in the shoes of the Israelite. Number one, we deserve to be in Egypt. Everything that we've done, every, every, every best case that we could plead for ourselves would say that we actually deserve to be in that place too. We deserve to be in the place of judgment, of, of death, Number two, we do not deserve to be in Goshen. And don't get me wrong, Goshen's not the end of the story. There's a land flowing with milk and honey that the Israelites are, are, are going to be awaiting here pretty soon. 
But they don't even deserve to be where they're at right now. They don't deserve peace in the midst of all this chaos. They, they don't deserve uh, the grace of God amidst his wrath and judgment. But number three, because of God's grace, we do not belong in Egypt. How inappropriate is it for an Israelite to see all this stuff happening, to feel so bad about what they deserve that they actually try to walk back over the border and go back into Egypt when all this is happening? What's Egypt for you? You know, we were all called out out of darkness into marvelous light, Scripture says. Sometimes Egypt is is, is the past that we wish we could just forget that, that, that we had. Sometimes Egypt is, is terrible things that we've done, right, apart from the Lord. Sometimes Egypt is terrible things that we do knowing the Lord. Sometimes Egypt is sin and horrible, wretched things done to us. And we have this sinful, twisted, sick, messed up way of equilibrating our life by going back to the thing that we know the most. We do not belong in Egypt. Here's the best point, though. Number four, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will never go back to Egypt. Think about it. I mean, think about the prodigal son, Luke 15. He goes out into the far country. It's only a matter of time. When he's gone out, he's he's seen what he's seen. He's done what he's done out there, where he comes to his senses, and he says, I don't belong here. That's what the Holy Spirit does to you. You know, Every time you try to take a step back in Egypt for any extended period of time, he's reminding you, you don't belong here. Go back home. You're a child of God, man, woman. Go back to Goshen. You don't belong here. Here's the grace of it all. In Matthew 2, Mary and Joseph are fleeing King Herod's census, trying to avoid having their infant baby murdered. And they flee down to Egypt for a time. And then I love this. Matthew, quoting Isaiah, says that this was to fulfill the scripture, out of Egypt I called my son. Folks, here's the deal. Jesus became Egypt for us. Jesus, the son of God, deserving, loving, experiencing the joy, the peace, the community, the fellowship, the obedience, the relationship with the Lord for all time, well before Egypt was ever a nation. And he became incarnate to become the object of the wrath of God for us. So there's a couple points of, of application. Number one, if you are a Christian, as much as you may get disgusted with yourself at times because of your sin, because of your immaturity, because of your lack of uh, sanctification, whatever it is, it's inappropriate. It doesn't even make sense to act like what Jesus did wasn't effective, to act like you're not a part of the people of God now. This is who you are now. I don't care how long and slow the process pans out. This is exactly who you are now. And you're here, and you're here for good. Here's the other side of it. If you find yourself in that place, in that place of wrath, in that place of recognizing that maybe God is, is, is way bigger for your britches than you thought he was, 
All of a sudden, he's not just a good idea that some people talk about, that he's actually real, that he's the God of all things. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. That God, that that, that God's the God that you've been against. Just like an Israelite could never work their way up to God's favor, neither can you. And I know that it may seem like it's a mountain getting from Egypt to Goshen, but I promise you that all it takes is this, one step of faith in Jesus Christ. The offer is genuine. The offer is valid. Paul, Paul, we just got done reading Ephesians 2 in the back. Paul said, we were all children of disobedience. But by grace through faith, we've been saved. It's the gospel of Goshen. I know it feels weird because it feels like it's too much of a blessing. It's, it feels too good. Even, even when things get really tough, there's still peace. It, it, feels, it feels like we don't deserve it, like we don't belong here. And friends, outside of Christ, we don't. But Christ is a reality. What he did happened. And by faith, you belong. This is who you are now. There's no going back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the grace that you are. It's not just grace that you give. You are a God of grace. Love is who you are, but wrath is who you are. I I ask tonight, Father, for for a rejoicing spirit among the people of God that, that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There's no equal to you. And Father, though we deserve wrath, we deserve Egypt, we deserve everything that we think we deserve, you said no more. And you sent your son. And so tonight I pray, Jesus, that you would give us a spirit of celebration for what you've done. No, no more confidence or, or, or failure based on our own, our own mistakes, our own past. But help us, Father, to rejoice in who Christ is. He is our peace. He himself is our peace. Father, be glorified by our response.